Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, hello, hello. My nostrils, listener, are being assailed by wonderful fragrances being released from the flora and uh, foliage of Regent's Park. And it's a kind of a charming day to be out in the park, just warm enough to make things pleasant, and here to make things yet more pleasant. Michael Thorpe, urban historian. Uh, and architecture explorer. And uh, Or something. Or something, yes. <laughs> You're one of those people with many, many titles. Uh, yes, I do a range of things, uh, usually walking around, taking pictures and uh, exploring London's history, architecture, and kind of... Uh, tramping the streets really looking for new stuff and uh, stories to tell really so yeah well we're in the same line yeah that's great brilliant <laughs> happy to be here we need to mention the well-known mexican organization with which you are connected it always reminds me of speedy gonzalez riba riba arriba <laughs> yes. I, well yeah one time public programs manager at the rba organizing talks and events at the fabulous hq building uh, rba being the world institute of british architects and they have fantastic gallery and talks and events program down at portland place uh, in the center of london yeah was part of that for many years and uh, now freelance tour guide uh, and explorer as i said and doing um, research about all sorts of figures in london's architectural history and we're going to be focusing, I think, on one of those in particular. We're going to be looking at John Nash today. Uh, John Nash is perhaps one of London's greatest architect planners, uh, perhaps up there with Christopher Wren, really, in terms of the impact that he had on the city. Um, he was the guy in the late 18th, early 19th century who was responsible for driving through the street we know today as Regent Street, uh, which, of course, is in the heart of the West End and basically the main thoroughfare through the centre of town. Um, he also uh, was responsible responsible for many palaces, houses, and uh, where we are today, Regent's Park. Uh, he was the visionary designer, creator behind what we see today, which is a set of uh, quite fantastical terraces, villas, streets, and landscapes, which um, I'm calling Scenes of Wonder uh, at the moment, <laughs> just as a catchy walking title, really. But essentially, he was the guy who pulled it all together. So... I should, uh, before, before we get underway with finding out about Nash, I should say that we've just emerged from Regent's Park Tube Station. Uh, listener, I don't know if you've been there, but if you were street side, you might fail to notice it's there altogether. There's a couple of roundels, but even Google Maps doesn't like to give too much away about its existence. Close enough to Great Portland Street Tube for you to think that it's just another entrance to that, and very underused. Uh, yeah, I understand strangely uh, one of the most underused tube stations uh, in central london so yeah an absolute delight at rush hour uh, which must be good for your tours yes it's a good place to meet but uh, it, it's actually obscured by one of nash's creations which is park crescent which is where we're standing at the moment we're just opposite on euston road one half of park crescent has been demolished it was a recreation a 1940s recreation but it kind of 
supports one of the themes in uh, Nash's life, which is the idea of the importance of the facade and the setting. Um, many of Nash's contemporaries in the 18th century ridiculed him as being a collector of things rather than an actually uh, a serious architect. He didn't care about the detail. He was a scene setter. And really, it's to London's benefit that he, he took that approach. He built very grandly in what you see around us at the moment, which is stucco, this oil-painted, cream-washed buildings covered in plaster, which essentially mask uh, what are quite cheap brick buildings. Uh, And he did this all the way around the park and also all the way down Regent Street. So he was an architect, but also an architect with a very... um, a very strong sense, uh, well, responsibility for budget. He was also a developer. He had an eye on money. He was a bit of a opportunist. He was a player. He, uh, you know, a real networker. I mean, today he would be all over Instagram and, and all of those things, basically hashtagging his career to pieces. Uh, but he was a really very keen networker and uh, was worked very closely with the Prince Regent, after which uh, the street is named, and also the park. He became his great patron. And uh, really, it was because of that association with uh, the Prince Regent, George IV, uh, that all of this this happened. There was a few things, crucial things, that kicked off the development of the Regent's Park. Uh, it's kind of threefold. I mean, really, the, the state, essentially, uh, wanted to get in on the act in the late 18th century on uh, making money from speculation, housing speculation. And so the state was, uh, as now, seeking ways in which to realise their assets. And one of those assets was this giant space north of the edge of Georgian London, uh, which was uh, called Marlebone Park. And that essentially is the Regent's Park that we're standing in. That was uh, about 300 acres worth of land, which had returned to the state. And so after a long lease, they were able to explore opportunities for developing it. The first plan was basically for, for housing like you'd see in Bloomsbury or elsewhere in Marlebone, which is lots of streets, lots of squares, uh, quite a dense arrangement. This was abandoned under fear that the state had seized the land for private profit rather than public enjoyment. Marlebone Park in the late 18th century was a place uh, it was fields and farms and dairy farms and so uh, you know a lot of Londoners would head north and hang out in the fields so the idea that the state was seizing those fields to speculate and make money created a lot of political tension at the time and so the park itself came out of uh, quite a, a, a set of strange circumstances or happy accidents rather and compromises so the landscaping idea was, was put in after a lot of political pressure to give the well we're back to facades then aren't we to give the impression of it being a lovely public space oh absolutely I, I mean it was primarily a commercial development with park worked in between that and that was really what John Nash achieved very successfully about how to balance the needs of the state or the desire of the state to make some money to speculate to uh, have a commercial development but also give Londoners this public space now the, the several things I can summon to mind about that period all seem to suggest that that was a, a bit of a perfect storm then because on the one hand I think people were looking for investment opportunities around that yeah. sort of time lots of bubbles and so forth but another thing that was very fashionable was order and imposing order on landscape so in a way this is a, a dream project oh absolutely yeah and, and there's you know the the terraces and villas are all about the idea of 
order and classical orders in particular or Palladian orders this uh, a classic uh, development of London terraces in five parts which you see reworked time and time again around the park uh, you have your giant central feature usually some sort of pediment at either end you have another smaller set of pediments sort of flanking wings and then in between you have the terrace usually with the runner columns in the Regent's Park um, Nash plays with that incredibly so you have Ionic Doric, Oriental. Um, as I said earlier, he, you know, he was a collector of things. He didn't care for the uh, uh, what was appropriate. He was a real commercial sort of architect. Now, does that mean he was architecturally illiterate? No, no. He um, he, he knew what he was doing. Uh, he was just very canny, and he played with that, um, and very successfully so. A lot of the terraces here are, you know, slightly crude in detail, but the overall effect, as we'll see as we wander around, is is pretty spectacular. The bright cream stucco standing out against these uh, really beautiful mature trees and landscaping. Well, let's dodge then into the park, and it's pretty well fenced off on all sides. It sounds pretty obvious from what you're saying that Nash was good at networking and um, getting in with the right people. What were his roots? Well, when he started practice in about 1775, I mean, he he was a commercial architect working on a series of small villas for lots of private clients uh, uh, outside of London. So he must Um, have come from a fairly well-to-do sort of background. uh, He was um, a landed uh, gently commercial family who were merchant class not particularly uh, high up in society but middling doing quite well um, I, I guess I was wondering where he would have got the, the vantage point to have that sort of vision well again I think it was developed over his career he worked with somebody called John Repton on his houses out in countryside and John Repton was a landscape architect and he did parks and working with a lot of people who wanted a country seat uh, Nash provided the villa and uh, his colleague created the landscape around it that was a very 18th century desirable product people wanted to, to live like that uh, to mimic uh, the, the landed gentry elsewhere or the aristocracy um, and so it's through that work that he was eventually was working in the office of Woods and Forest, which is essentially the government's uh, development arm, uh, the state land management company. Um, not sure exactly how he managed to get into that role, uh, but you can assume he was a, a keen talker, and this role presented itself. Quite interestingly, it wasn't his colleague John that got that role. Uh, it was him. So, uh, yeah, he's kind of worked his way through... Uh, a lot of clients at that time and eventually landing himself in a government role advising lots of people on the development of London well I suppose it's a very good timing really for him because it was at that time where people were talking about the problems of London the West End had grown exponentially it absolutely you know exploded in terms of its density and people and streets and uh, there was a desire to uh, improve communication north and south and this is where the idea of Regent Street came from. It, it wasn't necessarily John Nash's original idea. He made it what it became. He decided the final route, but the origin of the idea was much earlier. And he happened to be in the role as it came came to maturity. So let me get that clear in my mind. That was he connecting up 
two areas that had sort of naturally formed that were busy, or was it a question of sort of pushing the boundaries further north? Uh, well, it was a bit of, bit of both. I mean, the West End had developed uh, westwards, basically, and had reached Hyde Park, and there was no major north-south street beyond Tottenham Court Road, which is the road going to Hampstead, essentially. The main roads were all heading west, and that was out into Oxfordshire or out into the, uh, the west country. The main highways were in that direction. And so the, the traffic chaos that uh, had... Wait, oh, sorry, was Oxford Street called Oxford Street because it went to Oxford? It wasn't, actually. Oxford Street is named after the Earl of Oxford, who was the landowner immediately to north. Oxford Street used to be called Tyburn Road, after the river, uh, which which runs nearby. Um, But there wasn't a north-south route, and so uh, people wanted to reform the bits of the West End. There were landowners who didn't want to go cheek to jowl with Soho, because that had fallen into uh, Bohemia, which is a lot more interesting. Uh, But the aristocracy were no longer living in Soho. The nature of those estates had changed, and so there was a desire to uh, drive a street through and to connect up this piece of land, this opportunity north. And for the commercial success of this, for this place to really work, you needed access. There needed to be a clear route. And uh, that was how you linked up the scheme. It was really John Nash who started really taking control of that idea and linking up all the spaces in between. One of the key visions that Nash sold, particularly to George the Fourth, the Prince Regent, was the idea of this processional way, this royal route, which would connect up the one-time palace down at um, the bottom of what is now Waterloo Place, which was Carlton House. So he had this idea that St James's Park and the Royal Palace down there would be connected to another royal structure up in the centre of Regent's Park. So the heart of Nash's plan was this uh, building called a Guinguetta, which is essentially French for a uh, kind of fun palace. If you go to parks in, you know, Germans call it beer gardens, French call it Guinguetta, and essentially it's a, a, yeah, a beer garden. He was proposing something something slightly different, but it was a a summer residence, the idea that the Prince Regent would, uh, in his carriage, head north along Regent Street, up into the park, and he would have a base amongst this beautiful new landscape with all these terraces of well-to-do housing. And it really was that idea. This was to be an exclusive suburb. And that's another interesting thing about that whole idea. The, The park, the landscaping was an accident, but in bringing these things together... We have the birth of, you know, the modern idea of the garden suburb, which we're still talking about. We, we talk about it in different terms today as the garden city, like Wellen and others in the early 1900s. But this was the kind of the origin of that sort of idea that you could mix housing and development. You could be close to the city, but you could have this outlook, which is rural, pastoral. And, you know, this idea of Arcadia, mixing landscapes, views, scenes of wonder, which is the name of the talk. And, uh, you know, the lake, the movement of people with this fantastic landscape of buildings framing, you know, backdrop to people's activities and the life of the spaces. How interesting. So I wonder, and maybe this goes further forward than we should really, but with the rise in fashion of romanticism and that sort of wild, non-urban taste, I wonder whether this started to look a bit uh, fusty after a few years. Well, it took a very long time to build, um, but I think... It was still very desirable as a place. It didn't, it didn't stay desirable for too long. I mean, it took a very long time to build, really. How long did it take? Uh, well, the whole scheme was, was over 20, 25 years. We started planting the trees in about 1813. 
And it wasn't until the early 1830s that essentially, just before Nash had died, the, the, the government said, right, stop work. We can't keep on developing it. Uh, Nash spent the whole of the latter part of the 1820s desperately trying to reinvent, come up with new ideas for making this scheme more commercially viable. The terraces uh, closest to the city, which was towards the south and the southwest, worked very well. They were let really quickly. Um, but the ones further to the north, they really struggled to sell, to make viable. So this is just quite, it's quite a modern story, really, about commercial viability. Just uh, given how we started the broadcast, talking about the quietness, relatively speaking, of Regent's Park Tube and the difficulty of selling these places at the top of the park, I can't help noticing for the middle of the day, in the middle of this city, we are on our own here in the park. There are very, very few people. I can see fewer than ten. I've realised as well, I've taken you on a route that can see very little architecture. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, we're essentially <laughs> in the middle Should of fields. I can't avoid the innuendo, but where is your fun palace? Uh, <laughs> wherever I find it. Um, <laughs> we'll head uh, east slightly here to the Broadwalk. So the, the fun palace was, <laughs> the Gringueta, was uh, halfway up the Broadwalk, which is the broad avenue uh, in the centre of the park, which actually sits on the same axis as uh, Regent Street. So if you look at it on, uh, on uh, satellite or, or maps, you can actually see that there's a kind of logic, this processional route, this idea again of the Prince Regent and this uh, ceremonial route um, would connect up the, the whole development all the way from Waterloo Place down at St James's Park through Piccadilly Circus up round the curve of the quadrant over Oxford Circus uh, through Portland Place over Park Crescent where we started which is the kind of gateway to the park and then straight through the centre and it would have landed at this, this royal summer retreat as it is, the avenue carries on north hits London Zoo and kind of fizzles out and this is the point where people usually ask how do I get to Primrose Hill <laughs> and, uh, through the penguins uh, exactly <laughs> so you have to do an awkward left so this processional route doesn't really end in anything uh, particularly glorious well, it's notable as well isn't it that he didn't retreat very far um, well, I mean he could have retreated to the Yorkshire Dales or something no but that's true I mean this was not uh, even as far as London Zoo the Prince Regent's big retreat was in Brighton uh, at the uh, Royal Pavilion which John Nash always also worked oh. on which is happening at the same time and this is in you know this is where the kind of politics and the the, the messy business of of, of patronage and uh, you know, his, his closeness to the prince um, he was essentially being given all the major works and this created quite a scandal and if you look at periodicals from the time John Nash is lambasted uh, there's this great cartoon of him standing on the spire or spiked by the spire of All Souls Church which he designed opposite the BBC on uh, Portland Place and it, it's called National Taste and it's meant to be a you know crude demonstrator that uh, this is a man who is out to make money and to uh, rob the public of uh, much needed funds. I mean while Regent's Park was being built, the Royal Pavilion was being refurbished, George IV was also rebuilding uh, Buckingham Palace and so the idea that he needed another palace was ludicrous and it created, it was quite a scandal a lot of people were very angry about this idea that the Prince Regent could have you know, more and more um, places for enjoyment it's particularly remarkable when you consider what had happened to the monarchy a hundred years before. Well, this is it. I mean, you know, one of the really interesting things about the park is this fear of the mob. Uh, this, you know, the French Revolution was only a few years before, 20 years before the idea had come up. So with this idea of, 
you know, keeping public calm, you know, uh, avoiding scandal um, was quite you know, foremost in a lot of politicians' minds. And it was really the political pressure from other people that, that you know, changed the plans and the nature of the park that we're walking around now, uh, and in particularly the, the Summer Palace not happening. But, of course, Prince Regent was quite pivotal as well because he, he championed it very publicly. He'd make grand addresses about London outdoing Paris, its great rival. So it was the idea that through the Prince Regent and John Nash and the creation of the street and the park and all the embellishments in between that London would be reframed in glory finally to outdo bloody Paris. Well, that idea really lives on, doesn't it? I it, think, it does. in, particularly in how the banks are treated in this country. You know, we need to have a strong, thriving financial sector that, uh, unfortunately, taxpayers have to bail out every so often at great cost. But it'll be the envy of the world. Absolutely, it's our it's our glory that that banks are doing so well. We should all be we're very proud of that fact. But I'm, the, I'm delighted. How about yeah, you? No, I wake up every day and thank thank everyone that, that they're doing so well but you know the, as you say the, the the rivalry between london and paris is ongoing but at that point it was quite pronounced i mean in many ways actually london ended up taking the lead an early lead on creating these streets through the city you know breaking through slums and narrow twisting uh, essentially you know some medieval some uh, early 18th century lanes and muses. I mean, it was something, obviously, that Paris later in the 19th century made its own through Baron Houseman and all of the streets you see there. But in the 1820s, it was London that was, was leading the way, really, in terms of creating modern streets for a very modern sort of way of life. Regent Street was designed as a shopping street, a place to promenade, a place to be seen, and really that idea extended into the park. You know, lots of people would come up with their carriages and there were uh, soft amusements around the edge you had on the far right hand side or I should say east shouldn't I you had the Colosseum and the panoramas which were essentially illuminated paintings and tapestries and people would uh, essentially you know, come in prom and hang out here in the early 18th century Nash didn't originally want that to happen he felt that the mixing of recreation and vulgar amusements would, would drive the price down. Now, um, you, you haven't really mentioned the vulgar amusements. Should I have been reading vulgar amusement in, the, in between the lines? Colosseum? I don't know if it was particularly vul- vulgar. When was you a- say Colosseum, I mean, you don't mean people uh, fighting lions. Uh, no, no. Um, literally, it's... Uh, I mean, it's... The, the, the building is still there, and perhaps we can go have a quick look at it a bit later. But we're, we're talking about a rotunda, a, a building with a big panoramic views in history which were illuminated. So you had, for Why example, is that vulgar? It's a bit tacky. Nash thought it was tacky. I wouldn't mind one in my garden. Oh, big painting of Vesuvius? Yeah, why not? Yeah, OK. Um, well, yeah, why so, not? I see, our tastes differ. <laughs> He's a bit of a... Nash was a bit of a hypocrite because actually he was in the same business. His entire uh, output was about creating scenography, you know, creating settings and views and pictures. He was doing it in 4D. Uh, So, yeah, he was a bit of a hypocrite, kind of picking on the guys who create amusements in the house for the whole of Regent's Park is a thousand postcards, one of which is coming up now-ish, I think. No, I'm a bit early. Anyway, but... uh, the building we're coming up to on the right is Cumberland Terrace, and this really is. Oh, the just, I should locate that. That is. Uh... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As we're walking up northwards up through the park, that is far to our right, through several tiers of trees. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But basically, this is the grandest, most bombastic, fast, fantastical terrace of, of all of them. And, you know, they're pretty big. And this one, the centre of it, is lying on the axis of where the aforementioned Summer Palace would have been. So we're kind of near that spot now. And uh, eventually, when there's amazing mature trees break uh, you'll get this view um, which essentially is a i think there's about 56 columns worth of facade there and this giant classical arrangement over eight bays which also sneakily includes a couple of semi-detached houses just behind a column of screens but at the heart of it is this giant pediment which at the top of is uh, a statue of britannia so it's this idea of the palace, which was so crucial to a lot of these terraces, that actually these are individual houses standing together but give the illusion of one giant country seat or giant fantastical palace. Well, that is quite impressive, as you've described. Trees are just lining up. I noticed, by the way, that the trees are more or less on a grid system as well. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the boardwalk that we're walking down, these trees were all planted originally uh, in 1816. And so, yeah, this was all... This is the only, I suppose, geometric element of the scheme. Nash believed greatly in the idea of the picturesque. Going back to the idea of romanticism that you mentioned, I mean, that's what the, the park and English landscaping was, was trying to do, conjure up this idea of a naturalistic place, you know, that it, you know, man hadn't touched this. It had just, you know, been found, this kind of idyll, this Arcadia. No, nope, I'm not getting that. These, not, getting not, not only are the trees equidistant and lining the sides of the walkway here but as they go back in uh, five or six rows well they're, they're on a grid system there's no other way to put it they're all in straight lines how is that natural okay. away from the boardwalk it, it, it's a lot more oh, it's natural. more natural over there is yeah, it okay. sorry this is the only geometric element um but yeah this elsewhere the naturalistic apart approach. from the non-naturalistic stuff it's extraordinarily naturalistic <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time you know john nash this is how prolific he was. He was also re-landscaping St James's Park, you know, as a demonstrator of the shift of style, of taste, and you know, the idea of the fear of the mob, the fear of Europe, or the, the difference of Europe. In the 1600s, uh, Charles II had had André Le Nôtre uh, come over to London and landscape St James's Park with this giant thousand-foot-long canal, this, this sharp, you know, ruler-edged piece of water in a very European, Renaissance-enlightened way. John Nash kind of tore that up in the early part of the 19th century and transformed that into a much more meandering piece of water. Again, it's this idea that it was a natural landscape, and that was an English way of doing things. But, of course, the uh, geometry, the proportionality, the, uh, the kind of classical on the edge was there to reference this kind of Arcadian landscape sometimes ancient Greece sometimes Rome but in the case of Cumberland Terrace over there this was a row of houses as national monument almost that pediment that you see with Britannia is telling 
what was the start of a big imperial story for Britain in the 19th century. Uh, And so with the, I suppose, lack of money to create the public monuments or the, the public edifices and buildings, he snuck it onto a commercial development. So it's really, you know, doing two things. It's working very hard. It's telling a national story. It's setting the view on that edge uh, off very nicely. Um, but it's also providing housing for the upper middle classes. And uh, these ones were very successful. Do we know who all the statues are? Uh, we don't, but they're, they're, they're mainly deities, uh, which kind of covers... <laughs> covers everything really <laughs> nymphs, deities, caryatids I mean some of them are allegorical Britannia is there, she's there with her shield and trident but elsewhere they're, they're, they're Venuses, they're you know, this Greek mythology, these figures of, of beauty and of progress of peace and of tranquility abound in this space it's, it's very difficult to follow on from that line I've just realised <laughs> I feel so overwhelmed <laughs> well, I'll just have a quick snooze <laughs> yeah. Good place for it, I think. Yeah. Well, we're coming up for one of the world's most, or if you rule out Victoria Park, one of the world's most ornate drinking fountains. Yeah, this was. I'm going to forget the name of it. It's dedicated. This wasn't part of Nash's thing. This came much later in the 1860s when the life of the park shifted quite considerably. Yeah, it's got that same Victorian municipal thing going on. Hasn't oh yeah, it? It, it, it's a monument to somebody called Parsi. I think, we can see the name we get closer to. I think he helped the British out in India in a tricky spot, as um, they often were. Yes. And so the, they, well, I just wanted to jump in, because that, that's, uh, it seems to me, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, I could be completely wrong, but that seems like an inversion of the principles that we were talking about just a moment ago with Cumberland House, uh, which is that over there, they've got a commercial thing, and strapped onto the front of it is something that looks a bit public. Here we've got something that is a public monument, but it's functional. It gives, it dishes out mm. water. And that seems to me kind of representative from what I can tell of the Victorian ethos, that it's about serving the masses in some way a lot of the time, getting the infrastructure in place. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, that's a really crucial point, really. I mean, although the spaces around and in, in front of the villas, the Regent's Park was, was public. It wasn't public as we, we knew it, uh, as we know it today. I mean, really, that idea of the public park was, was a Victorian Invention. We had commons and so on, but around the edge of Regent's Park were a series of gatehouses and tiny little villas, which essentially is where the security were. And as you notice, we come in, there's some gates. Um, they don't close anymore, but at various times, the roads and access into the park would have been heavily restricted. I mean, the park's still closed today, but, you know, they're essentially beagles keeping an eye on, on who was coming into the area. So this was like what people have said about the Garden Bridge proposals, in that there it gives the the semblance of being public space but is in fact not so much uh yeah it's quite similar i mean it was public by virtue of the the ground landlord being the state but uh you know this wasn't a place for riffraff in the 1820s or 30s but later as the nature of this area shifted the, the nature of the people using the park should we go this way well i don't know are they riffraff down there <laughs> they will be by the time we're down um, but <laughs> by the 1860s the areas to the east of the park had become very industrial. The Euston Railway had arrived in the 1830s and Camden had really grown up as a very working suburb of a much larger piece of, of London, of inner London. And so really the, the facades create this, uh, this quite firm barrier between two worlds, which they still kind of do today. And this idea that we started with, the idea of the facade, is so important. You know, you're controlling the space. And I suppose 
obviously the mood, the air, you know, architecture does that all the time. Setting is very important. Creating intrigue or creating ambiences and responding to uh, uh, the, the landscape is, is something that he did. It's worth saying as part of that that it smells awfully nice here. And that was one of the first things that struck me as we got close to the park was the, the fragrance of uh, blossom and flower. And I guess in the 1830s, that couldn't have been more important. Yeah, I've never really thought about that, to be well, honest. Well, we, we, but... just, we just had the... Uh, with the, the arrival of the railways, I guess, some of those places around the back of King's Cross, which were oh, we see. Okay. less desirable, yes. they, they'd have gone. Yeah. But you'd have had the smoke coming in from the railways to take, its, uh, to take the place of the stench of the uh, rubbish heaps. Oh, yeah. I mean, much as then, then as now. I mean, you know, London's parks are its, its lungs. And, you know, to get away from the smog, the industry, as you say, to have these spaces and to make them genuinely public was crucial, it was really important. It's something that, interestingly, in Paris, um, they, they borrowed the idea of the, the, the large parks and the, the open fields and spaces for all sorts of activity from London. I think it was Napoleon III who was here on exile. He went back to Paris and gave, gave Parisians the Bois de Boulogne, modelled on the parks that he saw in London, because Paris didn't have those spaces. So London is... You know, blessed with these incredible chunks of green, uh, which, yeah, in the Victorian city, must have felt even more uh, of a, you know, a refuge from life outside. But again, going back to this idea of facade, there is a very keen divide between the life of the park, the facades, and what you see at the reverse. Which I suppose is, is the carrying on the, the theatrical illusion of, of scene setting. This is backstage. This is where the, the dirty business of the development uh, was happening. As part of the development of the park, Nash also developed a series of marketplaces, places where trades and uh, uh, fruit and veg sellers, hay markets, all sorts, would actually facilitate the park. Uh, it was also a place where the materials to build Regent Street and all the houses came in. So we extended the Regent's Canal down on a spur, almost to... Euston Road. So down behind these fantastic terraces lies this grubby workaday bit of city, which was essential to the success of, of getting this stuff off the ground. I mean, at that time, canals were the way to bring materials into the city, and Nash understood that. He was a very, you know, in terms of programming development, he did that fantastically. You know, he knew what he needed to make that work to get the materials, you know, a logistics sort of guy as well. So this is why he's so fascinating, really, that he was covering all bases. Well, we've passed between... Actually, what we're passing between is two sets of children's play apparatus, and I suppose that carries through the idea that you're talking about there with the grandness being up the front end and the... Well, I don't think children are dirty business, but they're not quite as glamorous, and uh, they've been confined to this rear part of the park. Well, I think Nash would have put them in togas or something a little bit more appropriate to the, the classical illusion i'm not i'm not sure but uh <laughs> he would have designed little wings tower. and bows and arrows that would have been a tower of the winds not this pirate adventure I and mean, again <laughs> the, the sort of thing going on in the park nash had to relax really because as i said earlier it wasn't the biggest commercial success and so the commissioners who are in charge of the the budget essentially they'd have to accept that there'd be greater diversity of uses in order for it to make it pay riffraff 
riffraff. <laughs> you have the zoo arriving in the 1840s, a bit later, actually after uh, Nash's death. Well, what would Nash have made of that? Um, well, originally it was set up as a scientific institution, so I think he would have been all right with that. But as a, as a place of amusement, later, yeah, he may have had some trouble. Giraffes in togas. Exactly. Well, it's interesting. One of the architects he was working with, a guy called Decimus Burton, which is one of those great early 19th century names, meaning ten, my tenth child, which is great, Decimus. Uh, anyway, um, he, <laughs> he actually designed uh, the first buildings in there. So this guy went from designing, um, working with Nash on these classical, you know, terraces to building giraffe houses and uh, aviaries which is quite, yeah, quite interesting I mean, essentially they're warehouses but some of them are still there, which is great um, We're coming up to a church, the name of which escapes me momentarily Oh, but, but um, the clash of architectural yes, stars is and impressive this is why this is what makes the story of Regent's Park so much more interesting I, I should describe very quickly we've got one of those big cream washed terraces that we've been talking about it must be uh, in width i would guess around about uh, 15 miles <laughs> and next to it there's a small church all higgledy piggledy dark stone tudor chimneys and a thin spire poking up uh, yes so this was something that was constructed in the 1820s as a church and um i think oh i'm gonna get it wrong but uh, I th- it was a college but essentially it's Nash hated this he was really affronted by the idea that this architectural harmony was going to be destroyed uh, by incorporating what is as you say a, a gothic rough brick building with spires and gables and visible chimneys and you know it, it didn't fit his vision God getting in the way again yeah absolutely but uh, you know you compare it to the thing on the left with its Greek deities standing on top of the, the pediments this is a controlled vision this is a, an aesthetic battle here but Nash had to accept that he wasn't going to always get his own way on it again this is you know the interesting thing about it it's it's a lot of it is a compromise this kind of happy accident um history well tends to tell us you know the, the glorious continuity of things but what's a lot more interesting is the kind of skullduggery the uh, nepotism the uh, uh you know all of the arguments and fights and compromises that people had to make to, to have these outcomes. And London's built fabric is, is a symptom of all those sort of things, which is kind of, you know, even more fascinating. What's your view of Nash by the time he gets towards the end of his life? What sort of person do you think he was? Um, I, th- <laughs> I think he was just pretty frustrated. Um, but he needn't have been. I mean... Well, really, yeah, after all of this no, uh, achievement. Yeah. Um, I mean, he... I think he... Because of the scandal, I mean, his patron, George IV, yeah, was basically told to calm down and his budgets were cut. And so Nash lost his patron and lost his sponsor, lost his client uh, for so much work. So I think he was frustrated. I mean, the, the, the fact that he kept on producing these plans and revisions for how he was going to squeeze more delight into this park or more commercial development, um, it, it, I think, demonstrates that he, he desperately cared and wanted to keep keep going it was the commissioners that just said that's it you know no more it's finished just let it be essentially but uh yeah nash wanted to keep going but uh you know when he died in 1835 yeah you know this this was maturing this was taking off so it was you know a great success i'm not sure commercially uh it was the most viable thing it's a strange thing that you know it started life as a way for the state to make money but then the state snookered itself by creating a public space from which it couldn't make money 
I was going to find it very difficult to make yeah, money. There's definitely a flaw in that plan. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's a delightful flaw from which we've all benefited. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're doing it now. But there was a plan originally for about 28 villas to be distributed through the park, which, you know, never happened. There was only about eight built, and they were very difficult uh, to get off the ground, and uh, some of them were demolished. But, yeah, again, Nash was trying very hard to add things, to reimagine it. At the very heart of the park, uh, where we walked through earlier, there was this plan for a giant double circus of buildings, which would be, you know, a park crescent in double, but even bigger. And, you know, he was still working on that in the late 1820s, when it had already been demonstrated that a lot of the traditional terraces were quite difficult to let. Park Crescent itself, which was one of the first schemes that started in 1816, was abandoned because they couldn't get the financial backing. I mean, it's quite an an ominous start to such a grand project. I feel like there's two different things you're saying there. One of them being that they couldn't let them once they were completed and one that they couldn't get backing. And both of those seem extraordinary. Well, when it started, this was was a a completely new venture. It was uh, something that was going to be set in amongst countryside and or the illusion of countryside parkland um, and actually this was at the extreme north of built up London and so the, the fashionable developments down at Mayfair it, this was where the prime property was, the estates, the Grosvenor estate down in Mayfair towards Hyde Park You know, the ta- uh, London was expanding in that direction and so this was the peripheral so that in that sense it was risky it was the edge of town, it was a new venture and it took I suppose quite a bit of effort to convince people to invest and to uh, you know make this place their home and for builders to take the risk nash himself took the risk on quite a lot of projects he was a he financed them he was a developer and an architect and so you know that says a lot about his conviction his determination to make this project work he threw his own money at stuff and became a, a developer and you know created his own projects through his own money so that's, I think that's very interesting. But there was boom years for the park. As I said earlier, the, the terraces that we passed uh, towards the south, uh, they were let very quickly. But towards the end of the development, I suppose, fashion had changed. The drift of London was shifting. Belgravia was taking off. Uh, and so a lot of the most fashionable developments had headed south by the 1830s. And so over the course of the 19th century, the nature of this area changed very dramatically. As I said earlier, you have London Zoo arriving, you have all these different amusements, you have the railway either side of, of the park. And uh, you know, by the turn of the 20th century, a lot of these terraces were semi derelict. Um, there's, there's great shots in, in Reba's archives actually that show the terraces just before the Second World War and they're, they're, they're rotting. You know, the, the oil paint facades, the plaster is hanging off bricks and they've been subdivided. So there's been a curious kind of shift in how people view these. I mean the late Victorians called Nash's buildings sham architecture. They, they didn't value them at all. And so they didn't think anything of tearing them down, which uh, down at Cambridge Gate, which is on the the east side, uh, which is what they did. They rebuilt a terrace in this grand French style, uh, this French Empire style, big mansard roofs in bath stone, because, you know, plaster was was considered sham. And actually that's 
kind of true, but you know, but but why not? It had the general effect, and again, that comes back down to the, back to the idea of Nash as a, a scene maker, and uh, you know, not caring too much for the details, the overall setting, and so yeah, I kind of, it's a really interesting story for that, and I think actually the fact that these terraces are so desirable today, and that people are spending vast amounts of money restoring them, you know, there's a constant smell of oil paint in Regent's Park because people have to keep an eye on this stuff. It doesn't last very long. Uh, It's only skin deep. It's brick behind. There's all sorts of cavity walls. There's bits that can, you know, damp can get behind all these different materials. And they're constantly layering on paint, oil paint, on top of these details, which they... (laughs) There's a kind of cycle to these buildings. They layer it up, layer it up, layer it up. The detail disappears, and then they have to start again. We've come to the end of our time. (laughs) <laughs> Unbelievably, that's whistled by. We might have to go to the zoo. In fact, I know what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to jump on eBay immediately and uh, try and bag myself an enormous painting of Vesuvius for my garden. <laughs> Fantastic. It's, uh, yeah, panorama. If people wish to accompany you around a tour of the park or indeed uh, somewhere else in London, how can they go about uh, that? Well, they could go to uh, my website, which is novemberspawned.co.uk. Uh, what? November- <laughs> I'm going to change it at some point. Um, at the moment, that, that's the, the website. Wait, it's a Morrissey song. But anyway, it's a long story. But uh, at the moment, that's where I kind of post my walks and tours. So the, the, the first one coming up with Reba is on the 11th of June, which I think you can book for now. Uh, well, I hope so. So, yeah, architecture.com is probably uh, an easier place to find me. But uh, if you check um, novemberspawn.co.uk, there's yeah, other or, stuff. Or, or William, doing. it was really nothing.com. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Suede head, et cetera. But yeah. <laughs> Michael Thorpe, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Mike Althorpe. Thanks too to Lizzie Cooper and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm then Quentin Wolfe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. shopify.com work.